I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Back-to-back episodes. Well, I guess one per week. I love that that's back-to-back to me now. I used to think that that's what my normal schedule would be, one podcast per week, which sometimes happened, used to happen, especially more in the past, but it's been a bit more like once a month these days, which is fine because this podcast has always been committed first to authenticity and not forcing anything. So it's never made any sense to me to interview people or release things just for the sake of a schedule. In fact, I pretty much rejected that when I started this podcast. Um, And I noticed that the fewer episodes I put out, the more people listen to each one, which feels great to me because I feel like I... I put a lot of thought and care into choosing the guests, into choosing the music, and choosing if I read poetry and what poetry, or my own writing in one of the episodes and the introduction, etc. And I think even if the subject matter or the person that you see in the description, even if that person might not seem super interesting to you, I really try to make it applicable to everyone. And yeah, I'm I'm grateful that people get to listen to more because they're waiting for another episode that hasn't been coming out. So they're like, damn it, okay, I'll listen to that last one. Hopefully that's not the sentiment, but glad to see that more people are listening to each episode because I really love each one. I feel super passionate about all of the guests and all of the little extras and whatever I say in the introduction, they're all their own little capsules. So today, today I'm bringing you a conversation with Peter May, Peter May is another local here. He lives in Crestone. Last week, I released an episode with Sarah Jones, who lives in Hooper, which is in the San Luis Valley. It's about 40 minutes from me. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, I recommend, if you want, to go back. I recorded these conversations pretty much back to back. I think I went over to Sarah's and then the next day had this conversation with Peter. So Sarah's conversation was definitely fresh in my mind, and I brought up a lot of stuff that we talked about. So they're good. They're a good pair. Uh, and so if you have the time and the interest, I definitely recommend going back and listening to my conversation with Sarah first. Both people, both conversations are very different and yet extremely complimentary. It is another beautiful morning here in Crestone, getting a bit of wildfire smoke from the other side of the San Juans. I read about this late last night where the smoke is coming from. Not too bad but definitely visible. Um, But can't complain because the bugs are gone, as I think I mentioned in last week's episode here. And we have a pretty, pretty bad mosquito season, but most of them seem to have dissipated. So 
It's like that thing where you like get through the worst and then the best feels so much better. I think that's a lot of why I like living in a place like this because it isn't easy. You know, it's not like Southern California or Hawaii where I know there are some issues there, but generally it's just like everything is growing all the time and everything is lush and moderate and nice and, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like dependable and reliable. That is not the case here. The weather changes insanely quickly. We can go from hail to beautiful sunshine in about 10 minutes. Happens a lot this time of year with the monsoons. Um, so yeah, I feel like I've, I've, uh, made it through the worst and now the best feels even better. And yeah, I was talking to Chris yesterday about some of what I've been feeling because we've been coming back and forth to Crestone since 2018 now, which is a long time. I think the largest chunk of time we spent here previously was about eight months, but it was also during COVID. So although we really got to know the area, we hardly spent time with any people. I think people were spending time with people who already knew each other, but we did not really know anybody. Uh, and so we were sort of alone and it gave us a good basis for the the place itself, but not the community piece, which I feel like is a big part of it. Uh, so now, especially because the weather's been warming up and I've been getting involved in things, it feels like I know Crestone a hell of a lot better. And also I feel like my psyche and my body is adjusting to this place in ways that it hasn't before, knowing that I'm leaving, right? Like I wasn't planting anything or helping anyone plant or grow anything, or I was... I still felt so unstable because there were no plans to stay. And now we have this house that we bought and other land here and presumably we'll be staying here, leaving occasionally for short stints. But like this is actually the place that is home now, which is new. I haven't had that again since 2018 when I gave up my apartment in Topanga. So very different. And in my experience, I mean, I even had this experience when I got divorced and moved in to my cabin in Topanga, California. And although I also didn't stay there very long, I did have space and I had time and I had this sort of openness and indefinite feeling in my life that I hadn't had in a while, even though I owned a house with my ex-husband, um... It was just a bit different. I feel like I allowed myself to like just let go and be present in Topanga because I was going through an extreme dark night of the soul that like ripped me open and tore me down into a million pieces. But the point of all of that is there was this confusion that I remember feeling back then because, sorry for those of you that have heard this story a million times, but I got divorced. It wasn't a good relationship for me. Um, and I really just didn't know myself and had gotten extremely far away from myself. And then finally, I was like, fuck this. I'm getting divorced. I need to have a different life. I did not realize how different my life would become. I was very much in denial about how much needed to change at the time. But the point was that I, I got divorced. I moved into this place and my mind was saying, okay, like now's the time for me to be my best self. And here I like here I go and I'm about to be so rewarded by the universe for opting out of what was unhealthy and toxic and not for me and um, really doing this work to uh, 
figure out who I am and where I'm going. And then I got extremely sick and I had pretty severe, not pretty, severe acne all over my face. And like whatever you're imagining, it's way worse than that. It was debilitating in so many ways, right? Like physically in terms of being ashamed of going outside, but also like my face was actively getting scarred on a daily basis and uh, it hurt. And um, so it was both this physical and psychological huge issue that led to all these other issues. And I couldn't for the life of me understand what was going on because I felt like I'd already made this connection that some of my health issues that I'd been struggling with for my whole life had been connected to my psychological state and my emotional state and my relationships and my friendships and the choices that I had made. So now that I was making all these choices that felt authentic, I could not understand why I was getting so sick. And it was really confusing because I thought, fuck, is this the wrong decision, right? Like, what is my body trying to tell me? And I think through a lot of self-reflection and speaking to other people, what I really came up with was that all of this crap that needed to be expelled, all of this toxicity, all of these, this sort of parasitic energy. I also did this like intense parasite cleanse at the time, which was incredibly symbolic and went way too hard into it at a time of like severe emotional and psychological stress, which I think added to all the health problems. Just a series of bad decision folks uh, would not do again. But what I sort of came up with was this like, oh, maybe it's that I'm not that I'm being punished but that my body realizes it has the space and time to process this stuff now. And so I've been holding it in and holding it in and holding it in because I didn't have the psychological or emotional support. I didn't even have the intelligence. I just, I wasn't in a place where I could heal. And then finally I opted out of all of that and I put myself in the space. I was living al alone for the first time in my life at 28 uh, and all of a sudden it was like, okay, now's the time. And so now I'm in my life, I'm in a much different place and thankfully not sick. However, I feel like once again, for the first time since Topanga, I have time and space in a way that I didn't before because we were traveling abroad or because we were in the van or because we were like bopping from one rental to the other, right? Our... I think our bodies and our psyches know how much we're capable of, much more so than we think we know. And so when there's so much energy and time and effort being spent to just like keep our heads afloat at work or in our family life or in our relationships, you know, we're, we're just not going to be able to do the kind of like detoxing, whatever the thing is that needs to be done if our bodies don't have the energy for it, it's probably not going to happen, or at least not, it's not going to happen in the way you want it to happen. And so I'm experiencing something like that in Cresto now, where thankfully years and years of inauthenticity and <laughs> childhood trauma are not what's coming up at the moment, although maybe a little bit of that. Um, but there is all this space and time. And I feel like, you know, everyone talks about in Crestone that like it really works for some people or it really doesn't and it either sucks you in or it spits you out. And, you know, coming here on and off, I kind of understood what the people were talking about as far as the intense weather and 
things did feel kind of clearer here in a way that they didn't elsewhere, but I couldn't quite say I knew what it was or what it felt like. And now that I've been here for quite some time in this sort of more stable way, I think I get it more. <laughs> and there is certainly like, I, I hate all these like spiritual new age terms with like the veil, but it really does feel like the veil is just a lot thinner. Um, and so there aren't, you know, traffic lights and there aren't people beeping and there aren't six lanes on the highway. So once again, where does our energy and our capacity go or what, what do those things do? What do they have the, um, you know, opportunity to do if they're not so sucked into just fucking surviving on a daily basis, you know, getting from one place to the other. I realized that when we were traveling, it was like, I have zero energy for anything, any creativity, nothing, any self-reflection, because I'm so, it's all going into like, what's the next Airbnb we're staying at? And like, what are our travel plans? And, and even in the van, this happens too. Like just the energy of getting from place to place sort of strips you of energy to do anything else. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine to put our energy into those things once in a while, but definitely noticeable when that's not the case. And I feel like the best I can say right now and sort of where I've been, especially in the past week, it feels pretty extreme, is is just that everything feels louder and clearer and like more purified. So both sadness and joy feel a lot more extreme and merge together in ways that I'm just beginning to accept. Um... I just said to Chris the other day that like, I feel like anytime I get emotional, it becomes more and more difficult to distinguish what the emotion is. Is it grief? Is it love? It's both. <laughs> I really think it's all just one, right? It's all just aliveness. Uh, I've been listening to Joseph Campbell's uh, The Power of Myth series. This is available on YouTube. Uh, highly recommend it. I've sort of watched bits and pieces in the past, but I'm working my way all the way through from the beginning. And there's this mm, quote, right? Man's search for meaning or, you know, that, that the, our, this idea that our goal in life is to find meaning. And Joseph Campbell said, you know, I think that's not necessarily correct. I don't think what we're seeking is meaning or the meaning, I think what we're seeking is the experience of meaning and the experience of life. He said the rapture of being alive, right? So that if we look at a flower and we feel emotion or we start to cry because it's so beautiful and we're like, what's going on? Why am I crying over this flower? Um, there's no meaning there, right? And if we were to sit down to try and make a meaning of it, we lose it. We go into our brains, we go into our intellect. And so just that rush of lifeness, I think, is what we're seeking. And the less distraction and the less energy suck our life takes, the more opportunity we have to feel that. And I'm not going to lie, it's not like a rainbow flower thing all the time. It's super pointed. There is a lot of grief in there. Equal parts, if I'm being honest. And it's all sort of mixed in. And I, I recognize, I see myself like, oh no, like here comes these intense emotions. I'm just going to now cry for the next however many minutes. 
And I can feel like the patterns that I built up in the past of like, well, I don't know why I'm crying. So better not, or like, you know, I don't, I can't really identify this or I can't make sense of it, or I can't make meaning of it. Or, you know, I've got these voices in my head telling me I'm too emotional and all of that. Right. Uh, and I can see all that come up in me when I'm about to, you know, be in this life force energy and just to let that go now, which is a lot easier than it used to be. This shit takes practice, but just to allow myself to fear, feel that the sort of joy, love, grief, sadness, mush, it's a lot, it's, it's overwhelming and it certainly if we're alone and we don't feel like we have people to hold us or support us in that, it does feel too much. It feels overwhelming. Um, but it's there and I'm trying to just let it be there. And so I've, I've wondered if part of the intensity that people talk about in Cresto and the sort of way it spits people out or is too much is because that is what it is, right? Where when your brain's in your body, when our brain and our body isn't busy doing a million other things, what is there to do but exist and feel and be? And I'm beginning to realize that maybe that's a big reason why I like it here. I think I felt just very much intuitively pulled and didn't really question it. And it's gorgeous and intense and exciting. But I wonder if what I'm really seeking is that sort of purity of feeling. And it's actually possible here and possible, of course, in other places as well. But I think for me, this place unlocks it in a way that feels very true and intriguing and something worth following. So that's where I'm at, crying about flowers. Uh, <laughs> hope you're doing well wherever you are. Um, but all of that definitely, I think, relates to the conversation that you're about to hear with Peter. Peter has been here for, I'm going to mess this up, but like 40 years. Um, and so you can imagine the space and presence that he's been able to unlock in this place and it's beautiful and inspiring and I'm really grateful to be able to meet people who, you know, feel like the, the carriers, the people I'm on the shoulder, uh, shoulders of in this place. I can't quite call Peter an elder. I feel like he's not quite old enough, but he's getting there. He has that energy and I've been meeting a lot of other people who do fit that description. And that's been just so great too. And very much thanks to the Crestone Eagle, the local paper, paper here that I've been writing for this conversation really mostly happened because I was going to be writing a piece about Peter's environmental organization, E3 Ecologic, for the paper and was like, well, this dude's interesting. Let's record a podcast. So continuing to do that, continuing to interview people for the for the paper, which is going to inevitably lead to amazing conversations like this one. So I'm going to play you in today with a song uh, by Shannon Lay called Awaken and Allow, which I feel like fits very well into this introduction and into the conversation that you are about to hear with Peter. It feels like a good mantra to begin. But before I do that, one quick note, Chris, Ryan, and my and Cameron and Melaine Shane. Cameron and Melaine are two uh, mixed movement artists and athletes. They live in Montana in Whitefish. And 
Chris and I and the two of them are organizing a retreat this summer. We did one last summer as well. It's a lot. We have a more space this year and more experience. Um, but it's basically pairs movement and somatics with conversation and self-reflection and intellectualization. And the topic is relationships and sexuality and authenticity and communication and relational dynamics, all of that. But it's not just a bunch of talking. Uh, it's a lot of movement as well. So we're going to be pairing somatic exercises with whatever we talk about. And I'm going to be, um, I think, facilitating a contact beyond contact a dance class, which will also help us to unlock all of this stuff. It's a beautiful time. It's four days, August 20th to 25th. We still have some spots. We've been we're like, I don't know, spreadsheet illiterate. We can't, they have such an organized system. Cameron and Malene at Budokan are the ones who are organizing all of this. And they have such a, a well-oiled system that apparently Chris and I don't understand because we thought the retreat was full, but uh, it's just people who wanted to come who maybe haven't submitted their deposit yet. So if that's you and you have not paid your deposit, please do so because we will fill up those spots. Uh, so if you're interested and you got nothing to do in a couple of weeks and you want to come hang with amazing people and eat amazing homegrown food right out of the garden and, you know, connect with people for life, truly. We're definitely still in touch with a lot of the people that we met at last year's retreat and they're still in touch with each other. That's my biggest passion, this community thing, connecting people with other people, the sort of curating, curating a community, curating groups. I love that. Uh, and this is a perfect opportunity for that. So come meet other people like you and be mirrored and <laughs> be triggered and challenged and learn about yourself and have some breakdowns and eat delicious food. It's going to be a blast. Um, I'll put the link to sign up for that in the episode description. Uh, but please apply sooner rather than later if you would like to join us August 20th to 25th in Whitefish, Montana. Okay. Enjoy the song, enjoy my conversation with Peter, and I will catch you on the other side. I sit here quiet, fingers folded Holding something I can't see I must not fear what comes tomorrow I must not dream of yesterday I'm harboring a deep compassion Slowly it is what I keep I watch it grow from far from close Awaken the nature that is me I have to get out of California The days go by like smoke in the wind Oh, to grow, oh, to discover The nature without, the nature within I am so still I feel the earth turning The moon falls slowly into place Do not resist, new forms are calling They pay 
So I am here with Peter May. This is the first podcast I've actually recorded in our new house with a live person. So that's exciting. <laughs> so yeah, I want to I wanted to have you on the show today. And also I'm writing an article for The Eagle about your organization. But I thought it would be cool to get to know you a little bit better and figure out how you ended up here. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. <laughs> maybe I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, thanks for taking the time. And maybe we could talk a little bit about where you came from. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up outside of Detroit, Michigan. And growing up there is the Great Lakes region. So about 500 feet from Lake St. Clair, which is part of the chain between Lake Huron and Lake Erie. Mm -hmm. Water-dominated landscapes. Mm. And so when people might think, you say you grew up near Detroit, they might think like inner city where you... I was in a suburb 12 miles away. I think the thing that really, in a sense, I'm not going to say saved me, but kept me connected was that huge body of water. I think this is a big Mm. lake. You can't see across it. Yeah. You know, in the winter, we'd go and ice skate on it. And then the relic trees along the fence line were like the big old ash tree from another time. And the area where I grew up was more of a wetland that they made into, you know, more drier places. So they put, you know, the suburban style houses where all of them look very similar, if not identical, except for the colors you paint on them. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of like a beehive. Yeah. So when you fly into Detroit, you can see the beehive neighborhoods. The coloring book, basically. <laughs> yeah. And like yours is the off, you know, off white one. The other one's the white one. The other mm-hmm. one's the tan one. It's still being done today, but yeah. it's, these were actually really well built, but they were, you know, three bedroom, one bath. Houses with basements for the most part, but then every now and then there'd be the old farmhouse or the old house. And then what would happen in June would be the June flies. No, the May flies in May. <laughs> and I think of it, which I know by a different name here yeah. or there. They're May flies here, but they're fish flies there. And anywhere within the lake area, like within, you know, maybe a thousand feet from the lake or who knows, maybe a quarter mile, it would be covered with fish flies. And you'd roll on them, you'd drive on them, and everything would smell like fish. Because <laughs> they're fish flies. Yeah. You know, it's like you just get, everyone knew it was fish flies. Yeah. But then inland, I understand that wasn't an issue. Right. It's right along, and, you know, they were just 
that was just their habitat. Yeah. So they never left. Yeah. So was your family at all? Like what got you interested in nature when you say it kept you connected? What sorts of things were you doing? So yeah, it's a, a good question because like, how would you in a suburb do this? Mm. And my question is, how would you not? Because it wasn't my reality to not. And so the main influence was my mom. Mm. And she got, because of health issues, got into natural healing. Uh. And we grew things in the backyard. We grew comfrey and we grew all kinds of herbs. You know, my brother got into that. So he helped. He was older than me. Mm. He actually became a naturopathic physician. And one of the funny things I did is I was into fish. You know, I would had aquariums and stuff like that and then i tried to keep the fish in like a pool my friend was doing it like in a kiddie pool and you know you can't really do that and so they all died so i put them underneath the comfrey and the comfrey became gigantic oh wow. you know the whole feed the fish or feed the comfrey the plants fertilizer and i mean my backyard was about what 50 by 50 feet i did everything there yeah everything you can imagine like every sport no matter what, ice rinks and baseball fields and football fields, right? Basketball court, right? Everything. Yeah. It was, you know, G.I. Joe and whatever. Yeah. It was multi-purpose. Right. <laughs> and then you could see who, what the other kids were doing. Right, right. And then sometimes they'd come over and play. <laughs> yeah. Golf. Yeah. You know, was, I mean, it was whatever I picked up from the culture. Right. So... Yeah, I also grew up in the suburbs of Manhattan, and my mother was also very interested in, like, naturopathic, homeopathic remedies and stuff. So definitely, like, the weird kid with the rice milk when everyone else didn't milk. know what right. that was yeah, back in the day. Yeah, my mom had allergies, and she was probably the first person that I ever knew, looking back, even though it wasn't a thing then was to be, she needed to be gluten-free because mm. she was very allergic to wheat <clears throat> and the gluten, and that wasn't a thing then. And so we'd go out to eat, and she'd always have to have something special, right? But one of the formative experiences is I played baseball and rode my bike and did all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I hurt my ankle. I sprained it. I came hobbling home, and so she took me out in the garden, and we harvested the comfrey leaves. We made some hot water, put it in a bucket, let it cool, and then I soaked my foot in it. Not knowing. Mm. Not saying this is good, this is bad, this is just, oh, this is interesting, this is what you do, I guess. So I soaked it, and it was still sore. And I woke up the next day, and I could play again. That was the main thing. I didn't care. And so the next time it happened, it may have been my wrist or another sprained ankle. Hmm. I did it myself. And then I never forgot it. And someone here just yesterday or two days ago sprained or did something to his Achilles. And so these days, though, we've gotten into more of an alchemical union of the plants and the minerals. And so I made him something. And as soon as he put it on, the pain went away instantly. That's where the seed started. I was young. I was yeah. probably seven years old, plus or minus plus or minus, but it's really important. I found that if you can get that when you're little, yeah, it grows with you. It's like, okay, if that plant can do that, can another plant be a, of assistance too? In terms of broadening in the suburban context where that's not really, I didn't really know. I mean, I, after a while I knew I was, you know, my mom was challenged with different things. And because of that, I benefited because mm. she shared a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you had a similar. Yeah. Yeah. Which of course, as a kid, you don't necessarily get, although I feel like your experience must have seemed like magic at the time or something. 
Um, I wanted to play. Yeah. I didn't want to stay three days. Yeah. You know, you know, like I had my last day of high school, I had mono and I had to give a speech in a few days. And so she looked up all these things and what cured it in over, almost overnight was a garlic clove in my mouth. And every now and then I would bite it and have the oil mm. kind of seep down and by that next morning, I mean, this is a kind of an intense thing. Yeah, yeah. And the next day I could speak again. Just with really serious garlic fresh. Oh, yeah. But no, there was a no. remedy for that too. And that's, okay. that was Cheerios. <laughs> Cheerios took it right away. That's I mean, it's all these different aspects, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I didn't but know Cheerios take garlic. I, I didn't either, but we yeah. had them in the experiment, yeah. right? Yeah. So it worked. Soaks it up. So when you're younger when you sort of envisioned your life, is it anything like... It life? is and it isn't. It's Tell, both. Talk to me about that. It's both. I mean, I would... You know how when you're brought up a certain way, you like, oh, maybe I'm going to have a family and do all these things. And maybe I'll have a, a house and a car or two. And at some point I wanted to build my own house because I studied architecture. And I started working in that field and I just could not... I just couldn't do that anymore because I really didn't like the smells of the modern building materials. That yeah. was the main thing. And then when they started using the paints, this is in Seattle, they use these, you know, it's very wet there. So you have to use like the best paints mm. for durability, but they're so heavy on the chemicals that just the, the, them off gassing, if the birds come by, they, the birds just like die. Wow. I said, okay, <laughs> I'm kind of paying attention here. Yeah. And I had studied what's called natural architecture or building biology. It's similar to natural building, but it's not always natural building. And okay, that's what I want to do because some people are very sensitive to like formaldehyde or some people are affected, affected by and sensitive to electromagnetic fields. And so I really got into that. I did this course called Building Biology or Baubiologie from Germany, mm. which is fascinating because they got to study what each material does in terms of other things. Like does it let in like the cosmic waves, or the cosmic rays. Does concrete block the Schumann wave? Do different materials breathe? Do they diffuse? All these different aspects that can really kind of form your building envelope. Mm. And whereas what I learned in architecture school was called building science. We create a structure in a, an enclosure. Then you control it with mechanical means. And then sometimes when you do that, many times, you don't get to have what we have in nature. Yeah. Like oftentimes we don't even look at ionization and like be sitting in my architecture lecture hall and they have all this air being pumped in, but it's in, I can't remember the ducts, but in certain kind of ducts, all the negative ions hang out in the corners and all the positive ones are in the field of it. Mm. And so it's pumping positive ions and it may basically makes people go to sleep and see, so watch everybody just fall asleep. <laughs> It's no fault of their own. They had yeah. plenty of sleep. They weren't out partying usually. Right. I think I've been in that situation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, wow, this kind of makes sense. That's kind of been my love is to like mm. figure that kind of thing out mm. from a natural perspective. Right. And that's what kind of led me to doing what I'm doing now with like the forest and the, the forest formulations. So you sort of went like from this interest in plants to architecture, which ultimately led you back to plants and... Right, like they were right. merging at some point. <laughs> right, and where they merged was a professor. I went to the University of Michigan, and he was in la a landscape architecture professor. And in at Michigan, 
the landscape architecture is part of natural resources. In other colleges and universities, it's part of the design. And I just needed that. And what I came out of architecture school with is this kind of saying is the best building is no building at all. (laughs) Right? And maybe that's nature. Mm -hmm. And so then I got into land. I started doing other studies in landscape architecture. And then I got out of college, started doing building for remodeler. That lasted a year. Then I got into landscape architecture. And then from there, I moved here and got into land management and forest management and now stewardship and on. But yeah, there is a, there's kind of a link. Right. And I was designing like kayak play parks in college before they were even a thing. What's a kayak play park? Like up in Salida, they, they kind of help the river become oh, okay. these holes and so you can play in them. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that because like this would be fun because yeah. I was a, way into kayaking because it taught me about water and I could be in it. You know, that was just, and like, oh, wouldn't that be cool if we had a little place to do, to get out and come in and mm-hmm. play. But I, I like to apply it. That and, seems rare. I feel like a lot of people that are doing like outdoor sports types of things are not necessarily using it as a modality to learn about nature. <laughs> they are not in my experience. Yeah. Um, do you think that's something that can be taught or? <laughs> I think it can be taught yeah. if there's interest, if there's openness. Yeah. You know, like when I ski, it's a very different experience than my friends who are skiing. And I know it. I know it. I mean, it's like, hey, do you see those colors on the snow? What colors? Are you on acid or something? (laughs) No, I'm not on acid. But that's what it's been like. And to be able to find, that's why I've had to bridge like the spiritual quote unquote people with Mm -hmm. the athletic people because there's very few crossovers. Yeah. Very few. And I have one good friend here we used to ski on. He could see the colors. But it's like, how many people can do that, that are in that realm Mm -hmm. of athleticism? Yeah. Right. And so it's kind of cool to have this interview because you're saying, no, you're not crazy. And you are at the same time. (laughs) Because most this is not the common conception. Yeah. Well, and I think, I guess something, so I've been in Crestone on and off for three or so years, but on full time since this past fall. And what I've found here is the norm are very eclectic people. So people that have their toes dipped in many, what seem like kind of disparate, different (laughs) fields. Of course, they all are linked together in some way often, but I was just talking to Sarah Jones, who's the wife of Michael Jones. They own the Jones family farm, this potato farm out Mm. in Hooper, organic potato farm. And She, they moved here in 2017 and took over the farm from Michael's parents and Mm. are super involved. She just bought Hooper Junction and are hosting this like big artwork that this like internationally renowned artist is coming to the Valley to do on the 29th. Anyway, we were talking about like how, I guess maybe it's a rural thing, but especially here, it seems that people are, have their toes and all these different things because there's so it's so much more attainable here I think to do things right and like she bought Hooper Junction and people are saying to her oh you're crazy have you ever been in the restaurant business and and I said well you're not in the restaurant business you're in the community business and the most recent iteration of that is this restaurant that you've bought you know so it's yeah it's like you said it's weird but not weird to me there's a lot of space here yeah and there's a lot of need right you know, it just depends if you came in and, and did some kind of cooking from some other part of the world, like like Sering did at the Desert Sage, you know, Bhutanese, mm-hmm. right? 
it became part of this community for years and years, and we're really kind of missing it. Right. Both, both personally as a community and also the food, and mm-hmm. then that restaurant was reliable. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it's like true. a nexus of yeah. the community. Yeah, totally. And so many of us, when there weren't as many people here, you know, you relied on on, on getting information from people, not just from electronic means mm-hmm. and social media. Yeah. So. When did you, what brought you to Creston? Let's talk about that. How did you end up? Yeah, there? that goes back to a friend went to Taos at Christmas time when I was in, in college. And she brought me back this little teepee with these little pinion pine incense bricks. Mm. And I opened it up and it's kind of cool. I was into this know incense and i smelled this pinion pine like oh my gosh what kind of pine is this i've never smelled this before and i go someday i'm gonna live where there's pinion pine and i was at an oracle am i fulfilling the oracle whatever it is right? <laughs> yeah. i don't know but it was like the like she was she went to taos mm-hmm. and got it right for skiing and that stayed with me and when i had an opportunity i was living in seattle a friend's friend came to a retreat here with the chog dude I don't know if that means anything to you. No. The Chog dude was a relic Tibetan teacher, only spoke Tibetan, kind of yogi, hair everywhere, you know, just intense energy. Like, this is old school, old time. Yeah. Like, like from <laughs> other ages, other realms. Yeah. And I think I went to, she actually came to one. Her group was going to get land here. Mala groups were going to get land. And the land was cheap. And so then... My current neighbor and my friend and her mom came out. We all looked at land and we all ended up buying some. And then she and her mom never really ended up moving here. And then my neighbor and I did. And we've been here since 93. Wow. And, you know, people said that at that point, people, some group wanted to build a pink pyramid. I don't know if you knew about the pink pyramid. I saw that in the paper. And then there was Lindsay Farn up here and the dome Mm -hmm. and Keith Critchlow and... Another names with obviously with Hannah Strong, right? And I'm just still learning everything that went into them. Paul Winter, of course, was very much part of that whole group, and that's I loved his music from when my brother introduced it to me in probably college because I was kind of tired of rock and roll, even mm-hmm. though I'm from the home of rock and roll, which is Detroit, <laughs> yeah, in the Motor City, and <laughs> maybe that's why you got sick of it. Maybe because that's all you hear. <laughs> yeah. On every station, so he gave me some recordings of Paul, and then one day Paul calls me up. I said, Peter, I would like to make a CD there. Would you like help me? So I ended That's up. That's crazy. Or exactly right. And yeah. so I ended up going every one of these canyons to find this holy grail of music recording because Paul had recorded in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And got a reverberation to go about, I think it was seven seconds, which is amazing for you know. And so I ended up finding it up at you know, North Crestone Lake, longer than that. So we yeah. made a CD in 2006, 2007, and then we ended up winning the Grammy in 2008. Wild. And Wait, let's they, back up, let's back up. <laughs> and then we made a music video in 2008 because, I mean, there's so many layers upon layers here. Yeah. I'm like, how did that happen? Right, yes. It's funny because I've, you know, like seen you in passing and known who you are sort of, but I was Googling you before this interview and I was like, this dude won a Grammy for this album. And, but also 
a very typical Crestone experience. Like, oh, that guy's a National Geographic photographer, like a world-renowned sculptor. Right. But you would never know because it's you just, never know because you we're just, all just do everything. Weirdos. <laughs> you just do like you said. Yeah. You're not limited, which right. is probably the main thing that I enjoy the most. If I go to a ski town, they know me. They'll know me as Pinion Pete because they know I'm different. But I like skiing, so it's all good. Right. And they actually named me that because I would smell like my pinion creams. And someone said, I knew you were in front of me because I could smell you. <laughs> that's good. That's a good thing for me, too, because I'm ahead of them, right? Yeah. But that's a whole nother yeah. layer of this stuff, you know. And then so what just happened yesterday is Paul's connected in the music world. Obviously, he's won seven or eight Grammys at this point. Mm-hmm. He's recorded with the animals and on, on the Crestone CD my one of my main jobs was to guide the expedition and then play the conch shells and then record all of the animals because we had animals on the recording including the bison down at Zapata yeah you know, and when did music like were you when did, did I start with music yeah yeah I was gonna say like did Paul just reach out because you were in Crestone or was there this sort of musical connection that had been there was I don't think I was known for music because I wasn't yeah. really yeah you know I grew up you know, playing trumpet or cornet in fourth grade, like yeah. many of us started. I mean, I grew up, everyone in my family plays something and still do. We're just, that's just part of life. Yeah. But this is interesting because I asked a friend in college and I said, do you know this whole nature thing? Because we're in the Ann Arbor. This is like city. Even though there's lots of nice nature, it's still city. Okay, you know this whole nature thing? Because we're into like deep ecology and you know, writers like that and trying to integrate. And then I said, she goes, yeah. I said, okay, and that. And I'm pointing to her boombox. Music, the recorded music. How do those two go together? And she goes, that's weird because I was just thinking about that yesterday. The exact question. Mm-mm. Like, how do they go together? What is it? And so just yesterday, there was another musician on the Crestone CD that never came up high. Don Grusin, and he was living in L.A. as a musician. And so he did the um, the drone and, and the keyboards. And I just got to record with him yesterday because now he lives off of Ponch Pass. Very cool. And it's been how many years since mm-hmm. I, I never even met the guy. And the cool thing is that he's into beavers, which we haven't even got to yet. Not yet. And he knows Ben Goldfarb, who wrote Eager Beaver, And he lives in Salida. So there's all these interesting connections because the reason we did that CD, Paul said, which animals need the help? Mm. I said, well, obviously beavers because they're keystone and they were trapped out of here. Obviously bison because they were like decimated as well. And then the crane because they're indicator because they're very endangered. So those three animals were the the, um, celebrated ones on the CD. And so there's a beaver sounds from... Paul's place in Connecticut. There's bison sounds from right here, and there's crane sounds from the valley. And each one of those has a story. It is like magic. I mean, it, for what people call magic, it is very much like magic. Yeah. So you you co-produced this album, essentially? I mean, and... Co-produced it, meaning... Yeah. The expeditions were huge. Yeah. We took up so much gear, so many instruments... And it's a hard, like, for people who don't know, these are serious mountains. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I've, and ever since then, we, we kind of got in trouble for it, too, because we won't go into that so much, but everything's good now. Hmm. You got in so, trouble for what? Bringing no, no, gear into No them? permits. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, we were scolded and fined, yeah. and uh, that's all good. 
But every year, what happened from that is we got permits. Now we're doing it mm. with permits. Mm-hmm. So every year, I lead a high elevation elements retreat, where we take from the the Yung Drung Bun tradition and do elemental practices up high, and it's pristine because it's twelve thousand feet. Mm. There's amazing water. There's amazing air. There's amazing sun, and they're epic every year. Awesome. I did not know about those. And Coming do- up September twenty first. Very cool. Yeah, and they've gotten even better because we've taken and really gotten nurtured from the tradition mm-hmm. and now added, you know, what we're into now, which is not only integration with the elements, but how do we integrate that with our life, you know, in a modern way? And we have cool gear. Yeah. You know, you can be somewhat comfortable. Right. So it is it is a trek. Yeah. So let's talk some more about the land stewardship and ecological part of your life. Um, so I know you have an organization that's relatively new. Is that correct? Maybe the work the, isn't new, but the, the name is new. The name is new. The name is E3 Ecologic. Yes. And that is part of E3 KFM, which began, I think, officially as a nonprofit in 2012. And before that, KFM, or Kundalini Fire Management, started in 2003. And that started as a fire department. And I was the Baca fire chief here for about nine years and then it had interesting political restrictions and so we created another organization that could allow people to go out as firefighters in the region and in the country because the local fire department couldn't do it through the organization that was sponsoring it and so it began as a joke because someone gave us a thank you card that said something about kundalini (laughs) can you control your kundalini right and so someone made t-shirts and it was like, actually I have the t-shirt on today. And it looked like Mr. Clean. Yeah. And I went, you know, that's not really becoming of us. So I turned it into a bear and it became Kundalini Bear. And Kundalini Bear, the legend has it is that he was Smokey's brother. He never got found. He made his way into a monastery or a retreat center, became a meditation master and works with the fire within. Uh-huh. That's where this all came from. And it actually it used to be a joke about working with the fire within and it's no longer a joke. Right. Okay. So, so when you say the fire department here, like the firefighters couldn't go out and fight because of, there was no agreement. Okay. And so we created a new organization right. where it was easier to do that. I see. So when you go out on fires, you have to have agreements in place. Got it. That makes sense. I think so. But what does the fire department do if it can't fight fires? No, it can fight fires locally. Oh, I see. It just can't go out and be paid for it. You uh, can volunteer okay, all you okay. want. So got most it, of us volunteered many hours. Okay. But then we found a way that we could actually get paid to go like to Montana and fight fire. And what got you interested in fighting fire? I've always loved that. fire. Oh yeah. Since I, was, I saw a picture when I was little, that was another thing is I moved here in 93. I think in 94, I joined the fire department in 94. My neighbor says, Hey, look out there. And there was all this smoke and fire coming at our houses. So we cruise out there and we started fighting fire. I had no idea what to do. And I'd spent a lot of time playing ultimate Frisbee. And so firefighting in that old kind of style that I used to do, it's not really the way you do it because <laughs> I was running. Yeah. I'd jump over the flames and just having the best time. This is like ultimate frisbee, but with all yeah. different consequences. Right. So I was hooked because when then that has progressed now to where I become, you know, a task force leader on fires as well as a burn boss type two, where we're using fire in the stewardship role because many of our forests are adapted to fire. 
this one in particular. You know, many of the oak forests to the west and to the east, the the chestnut forests are adapted to fire. And if you don't get it, those trees can often not do well. And also in the landscape architecture thread, because now they're starting to weave, right? Yeah. Like, how are you doing this? I'm not, right? (laughs) Yeah. I just look into stuff. (laughs) Right. So I grew up here. I'm holding up my hand, and this is Michigan. And just across the water in Canada is the Walpole Island area. And my professor introduced me to them. He said, yes, they've been burning for hundreds and hundreds of years. And because they burn, they have every endangered species of southern Michigan and Ontario in abundance. Mm. Because they're burning. Because if you look at how a natural fire would occur in Michigan... It might lightning might strike, but it might not go. Yeah, it's lots of long time, so it's called returning to wall fire. It's not going to happen for a long time. So they learned how to do it, and because they did it, and they did it for hunting reasons. Mm. And I'm going to jump through because this is where it kind of comes to pass of why we use it and how we use it. So on our new logo, our new kind of panorama there's the bear it's cooling bear he's been remade he's much better than this one he's like a line drawing now we have an artist yeah i'll post the image in the the, paper and in the podcast description too so people can and then there's keystone beaver who's (laughs) cooling bear's buddy and if you look at emily fairfax's work the beavers can be firefighters too Mm. right but what's also on there is a monarch butterfly and the associated plants that they need to survive and thrive which is milkweed species Mm -hmm. So growing up in Michigan, we used to have milkweed all over the place. And a couple of years ago, my sister, who loves monarchs, she would get them, collect their eggs, make sure they hatched, and then release them, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. She um, she had no milkweed on her. She had several acres, and she had no milkweed. So I offered to go back and burn it for her. And I said, you know what? Let's do this a certain method. And this method is called using wisdom fire. I'm like, what's wisdom fire? So basically, it's when we meditate with the intention to bring back the milkweed. So we did it with my family, which I've never done before. We burned her land. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to do anything. You know, bring some energy and your family, and it's yeah. going to be. It actually went really well. It was slow at first, but it's a trick to get it to burn there because it's mm-hmm. so wet. You have to be really accurate Yeah. with timing. Not so much it's going to get out of hand, which it could, but to make sure it burns. So 30 days later... Both common and swamp milkweed came back without planting it. Well, awesome. We've done that here. We just didn't know we were doing it. We've done it here with blue flag or wild iris. We've done it in Iowa and gotten plants to come back that they hadn't seen in over 100 years. And my really good friend, Jeffrey, and I would do it together. He's a seasoned meditator, and I've become one. And it's kind of like having a sport event. You know, if you can do like I do hours long races and basically it's a meditation Mm -hmm. that's probably an interesting thing that maybe the other athletes are doing but may not call it that right but when you do that in the presence of fire what i believe is happening is you're qualifying the ash by your presence in your field yeah and we can demonstrate it yeah and that's on that new logo Coonley Bear is holding the wisdom fire. That's new from the old version <laughs> yeah. where he's like tossing all the elements. I'm balancing the elements. Yeah. 
And this is this is so far out there. I'm interested in who your audience is. No, they're, they'll be so into this. Really? Yeah. Because hopefully, <laughs> if any firefighters hear this... <laughs> The firefighters I know would also be probably pretty into it, honestly. Good. Yeah. Because I want to share it, and we're looking for ways to share it, but in the right way, because what people will probably have to see is they'll have to experience it. Yeah. I mean, and I guess a skeptic might say, well, wouldn't the same thing happen if you just burned it without the meditating? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) But why bother? (laughs) Why do it without that? I mean, I guess my response to to that would be like, I feel like so much of what land stewardship is, is having this like animate, active relationship with all parts of nature. So, and I would add then with ourselves, because if I was going to teach this, can you connect with your fire within, which is where we began with Kundalini fire management, working with the fire within. It was a joke at first. You know how it is when you're, you have no idea what's going on and it's just fun and you're having a good time and it's a service. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, we weren't actually kidding. And when you can actually really plug into the fire, have that fire talk to the other fire. I got you. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa. And I think at times if like skeptics could maybe bring out their scientific measuring equipment and we could probably start measuring fields. Yeah. The Russians have life force measurement. I don't think we have that, but we at least measure the fields. Yeah. So let's talk more about the organization and all these different pillars. If you have like an order in which it makes sense to discuss all of those things, I can just let you talk <laughs> or I can, <laughs> we can talk about beavers and then other yeah, things. We'll talk about beavers <laughs> in a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting because Think like the possible solutions can be right, can be put right in front of you Mm. and you'll miss it. Like I missed like the beaver connection with fires. Mm. Beavers tend to work with water, allow more water to be on the landscape more than if they were not there. So back in 2003, we began Kundalini Fire Management. We got really good at prescribed fire and we would do what we would train people with live fire because a lot of the training can be conceptual Mm -hmm. and in books and that's going to be about as good as you can translate it and then take it into action because some people can remember the exact line in the book they have no idea what's going on and that's very dangerous in firefighting and the first thing I do when I teach people about firefighting in real classes is as as soon as you see that fire say hello to it because then you can be present if you're thinking about your book you're done. You're putting yourself and others at risk. And a lot of them, people, they're going to, they're traditional. They don't, they don't, they, they have it in them, but it's just not something they yeah. can convey very easily. So we focused on firefighting. We then got into restoration with fire and we got all kinds of information from Northern Arizona, Colorado, other places that were more ahead of the curve, trying to figure out why are places burning you know, what's up with the forest? Turns out over time, especially since 1910, all those little fires that we put a lot of effort in to put out, we probably shouldn't have. No. And I can tell you exactly why. And that's because the little fires might have burned up a few trees. And we had one a few, several years ago on, call it Sunshine Peak or right over here north of town. It hit, lightning hit, Forest Service said, no, that's a good fire. We're going to let it burn. But 
the town people wanted to go put it out and they were threatening to put it out. It burned for like three months. Every night it would like torch something, right? And people would go out and watch it. Yeah. It burned 14 acres in three months. Like, no, because what you got is that release of the ash. And part of that ash went to then feed some of the bigger trees and smaller trees. And so they didn't have to metabolize it. So they got stronger. And I'm going to bet that there were mother trees that were affected, Mm -hmm. which is our next thing we're going to talk about. And then they were able to transport into the forest. I want to go check that because that's a theory. Is like if you can feed the mother trees, especially because they're getting more likely to survive, mm-hmm. and they can start feeding everything else. And we'll get to that in a second. But we focused on firefighting traditionally the best we could and then reducing fuels around mm-hmm. people's places. How does that judgment get made around, like, that's a good fire, that's not a good fire? Is Probably the... after the fact. <laughs> right. If it kills someone, it's bad. Right, or, like, no, it's too no, close no. to houses. So I mean, this this isn't house. about, like, some sort of ecological... Oh, that's part of it too. Yeah. What's part of that too? If someone, if you were to allow a fire to burn and it brings back all kinds of species, that would be considered a good species, a good fire. Right. Well, I was going to say like, is there, you know, I imagine there could be a good fire from an ecological standpoint that like is about to burn down a home and becomes a bad fire. Right. There can be mixed, (laughs) mixed effects. Yeah. And actually in the Walpole Island example they started building houses where they traditionally burn. And the way you burn there, which I found out is true in the way we did it, you light the fire and they would just leave. They just let it burn for right. weeks at a time. I didn't do that because yeah. I, I, I can't do that <laughs> you know, yeah. for different. But you do have the fire out there mm-hmm. and it's going to inform you when it's going to burn. It's very cool. Mm. But no one teaches that because they don't know it. Yeah, You know, and so I just read an article yesterday or the day before, about pinion juniper forests. And he said, these don't do well with fire. And the author seemed to not know that there's at least two kinds of pinion juniper forests. One's more like a pygmy forest, which would not do well with fire. One's more what's called an elfin forest, mm-hmm. which they grow taller. And that's the kind we have. We actually have both here. And they have very different return fire intervals. So we get ma- mixed up or messed up or confused mm-hmm. by our terms that we use. Yeah. And so we did restorative fire and we would train and we got the grass to come back right down here on on willow there was no grass at the entrance to the stables i knew it would come back and i don't know how i knew and so we get a big deal the whole board came out and all this stuff i waited till the leaves fell we lit the leaves and we moved some of the little junipers because it was being overtaken mm-hmm. by the junipers and that next spring all the grass came right back and it's still back to this day Awesome. I didn't know that we were actually influencing it with our consciousness. Hmm. This is Crestone. I mean, <laughs> it, fly, it, it flies here and it doesn't sometimes. Yeah. And it's like people looking at me like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Where else would I'm I go, down. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's keep going. So it started with fire and restorative fire. And then knowing that a healthier forest is less likely to burn down than an unhealthy forest. Right. So if you're starting to get, and then over the last several years, there were Ips beetles because it was either, it got too dry for too long a time or the forest was too crowded or different things. And so we would go in and take the Ips beetles out or thin the forest so that Mm. there was more moisture available. What we didn't know is that the beavers could, in a sense, they're, they've been gone for a while here. They're not storing any water. 
but and you know along the riparian zones Mm -hmm. but specifically to the beetles what we didn't even know to look for is there any mycelium present is there any mycorrhizal present people like what are you talking Mm -hmm. about well in these trees there's you know the mushrooms and they have a network and if you feed them especially the way you get them back is to do a low intensity prescribed fire Hmm. or low intensity fire doesn't have to be prescribed and that ash feeds the mycelium i can show it i do it in my house i mean and then the mycorrhizal is what attaches to the roots and that can help the tree then pull up nutrients in water Mm -hmm. and then through the network they share it and that's what we're doing now what's known as regenerational forest stewardship not just going and cutting and thinking that's going to be good just for the one aspect of fire. And this goes back to this t-shirt with all the elements is if we were going to lower fire danger, what could you do? Well, the last 20, 30 years is, oh, well, all these trees, that's basically BTUs. That's fuel. That's fire. It's latent. It's not dynamic yet. Mm-hmm. So we got to reduce that. I said, okay, that's one way. Well, I can see that. I've done it for years. It's where the oil comes from, all the products come from. What if we increase the water? I said, well, how are you going to do that? build up the mycelium so it can hold it too. You know, do other strategies. Perhaps, you know, do something. You know, it might not just be one thing. And so you're balancing the elements, but in a different way. That's what's fascinating to me. And the funny thing is, how do you get your grass to be green? And so most people say you water it. No doubt. There's another way. In the fall or the winter or the spring, early spring, you burn it and it'll come back the most lime green you've ever seen. Fire can bring back health, too. That's our big take-home. Yeah. But it has to be done the right way, especially now because we haven't had a lot of fires. Yeah. My tree, my house, has two or three fires from ute, ute burns. The burnt gulch was burned in 1882 to get the animals out. The miners saw it and started mining once they burned up everything. <laughs> Wherever you see aspens, basically there's been a disturbance, and it's mm. usually been fire. Could be avalanche, though. So do the beavers come into this picture also as far as the more water they did especially from us in 2012 we put on the 2012 crestone beaver fest i just found the old newspaper (laughs) we've been at this for a bit yeah and in 2006 paul winter loves beavers and so Mm -hmm. that's why we did that because they were trapped out that was the only reason then we had we didn't put it together that they would actually lower fire danger or could or would rehydrate the landscape we just said well that wasn't right. We need to bring them back. And, oh, yes, we were accurate, but we didn't know how accurate we were. Where did they, I mean, this is a probably overly simplistic question, but where did they go? Like, was there a lot more of a beaver presence here? And then... Yeah, 1800s. Yeah. What happens when places get settled is first the trappers go out and the explorers, and okay. there was a hat trade Yeah. And for England. And so they would, one year, I think they trapped about... We have the records. There's a book called Taos Trappers. Oh, wow. And we have a lot of history. And right out in the middle of the valley, there's accounts of so many beavers being in the middle of the valley that has hardly has any water in it anymore. And there were a lot here. Maybe they got 2,000 trapped each year. Wow. Or one year, maybe along this range. We have to look. Mm-hmm. But it was significant. And yeah. since I've been here, there were beavers on North Creststone. There were beavers on Willow. There were beavers on Spanish. There were beavers on Cottonwood. Now they're all gone. I used to swim with them. Talk about magical times, right? This is kind of fun because I'm having to reflect on all these things. Like, wow, this is 
it's kind of crazy. Like, why did I know? Why did I swim with that beaver? Why did he come swim with me? This is all like, I didn't know. No. And then I go out to Paul's land and said, hey, beavers, we're going to make a CD. Would you come? Would you be on the CD? And then within 10 minutes, it comes and makes a sound. Right in, right in my microphone. <laughs> That's what's on the CD. <laughs> you know, the tail flapping. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's almost like he came up to my feet. I mean, they're paying attention. This is the thing is mm-hmm. nature's alive. Especially, but the next thing now is we have fire utilizing it. We helped the spiritual groups for years and years. We got money for them. We did fuel reduction. We trained them. They had no protection. That was the other reason we started Kundalini Fire Management because these groups up here have no fire protection. Hmm. And so we started training them because it's better to be on site with a small fire instead of having people come 45 minutes or an hour later with all the trucks and everything. And now the fire is gigantic. Right. It's just common sense. Yeah. At one point... I wanted every other person to be a wildland firefighter because it this area kind of begs it that way. I don't know if I think that anymore, but I think we do need to apply our stewardship sense. So if we do have a fire, it tends to be self-limiting and low intensity in nature. Yeah. Got it. The next aspect is mother trees. We all knew this. We call them historic reference trees. And they're the biggest trees. And... This is cool because I'm going to a an herb conference in, a, in, a, in a, like a week and a half. And where they're having it, they have the ute peel trees up there. It's by fluorescent. Mm-hmm. And we have some here, and they have them at the park. It's interesting at the park because they burn around them so they don't lose them because that's a living mm. relic because the utes aren't here anymore. And what I learned is those are prayer trees. They did that very specifically for a certain reason. And I don't know that ritual or anything, but they're here. And invariably now, since they're so old, those are mother trees from the work of Suzanne Simard, Mm. who's found scientifically that trees are sharing elements and nutrients and things. When you feed one here, it goes over there. And if you take away all the weed trees, like the birch up in her neck of the woods, British Columbia, the Douglas fir get fungus because they're not having what the birch tree can provide and now i'm going to throw out a concept because you know when we have wanted to make something like we want to make you know like like a computer right we have a a computer factory Mm -hmm. or sometimes it's known as a plant right we have so many plants and these plants are taking the sunlight and making the elements available to us we don't even think about that where did the word plant come from yeah that's wild i never thought about that and these trees are doing, that's, the, that's what her work is showing, is those birch trees could synthesize from the light these elements. And sure, it's, it's, it's being supported by the water and the earth, but it's not really eating the earth up like we're thinking. Because if it was, there'd be big holes underneath every tree. <laughs> right. Like, where did it go? Yeah. No, the light, I mean, it's a, it's a process. So it's a plant, the plants, and that's, I think, where the medicine comes from. It's not just a chemical thing, but it's chemical things a part of it. So the mother trees we started to focus on. And can you define what the mother trees, what a mother tree sure. is for people that don't know? So the mother tree, in my estimation, could be a father tree depending on the species, are the oldest, biggest trees. They're the ones that have established their network, meaning root network. And then also when we do the music of the plants, it's established its electrical circuitry. Hmm. So when I plug a plant in, especially an old one, like older than three or four or 500 years old, it'll take 12 minutes for it to connect 
And that's, that's in, in terms of my, and in terms of what I've read, but that's how long it takes. And once it starts, generally those trees drone because they don't have to waver. They're like steady. <laughs> they're steady. And then every now and then they go, but they're, it's like a didgeridoo. It's just, <laughs> it's just droning. And that's true with the pinion here. There's a 500 year old that I've done the redwood out in Santa Cruz area. They're droning. <laughs> and it's, crazy cool to see wow this is nature in a different aspect so the mother trees what i found is to go back now to burning one year we got a grant to burn 400 acres in around the houses all through here and it was it was to support the pinion pines because i heard they were they like to be supported with fire. And if and this, since I had the scars and a fire ecologist came by, a forest ecologist, and she said, your trees have these fire scars on there. It's probably the Utes. And so we burned around mine, and then we burned all these places, and we had the biggest nut crop. Anybody ever remember that? People got mad at us. It actually had been 11 years, and they said, why did you do that? There's so many mites here. Why don't you collect them? They're, at that point, they were $25 a pound. Now they're 45 and they're such a good source yeah. you know, of nutrition. It's fat and protein growing on a tree. Right. And so over the years, because of lack of support or whatever, we didn't get to burn, and the weather didn't cooperate, so we didn't get to burn as much. So I developed a way to do it with a liquid. It's called mother tree food. It's mm. cold fire. And so about eight years ago, I started feeding my tree. And in two years, she produced nuts. And generally, a pinion pine will produce every seven. It had been 11 years before that burn. And then they all, almost every tree produced. It was a huge year. Mm. So I started feeding it. And then I feed it every year or so. And she produces every two years. So this last time around, it's like, you know, I fed the other ones a couple years ago. I'm just going to feed the mother and see what happens. So I feed her and all of her children then produce nuts. Showing me that she is able to transport. This year, she's producing some, but she didn't go to pollen. Whereas the ones I fed last year are going to pollen. That's the start of the cycle. But some of the children are producing. So the whole idea is this is a, an orchard. It's wild. And it's actually a native permaculture orchard if we know how to tend it. So when they go to pollen, you said that's the first step. First step in fertilization. Mm. Because they're... But then do they always produce nuts or... No. No. Some of them will produce cones, but no... And the shells, but nothing will be inside. They're trying to. Yeah. They didn't have that, maybe a couple molecules that they needed. This is crazy. The the, the very tiny amount of influence that could happen that affects an entire forest. Yeah. So that's where the mother trees and other people in the last couple of years, we got a small grant. I gave away the mother tree food just to see. And so people would say, how did your tree do? Oh, produce lots of nuts. I have no idea what stage they were at, but that's now a standard thing. Yeah. It's mother tree food. And since that's part of E3 ecologic, mm-hmm. we can also burn. That's more economical, a little more dangerous. And we're doing a lot of education with, beavers and how they're important, mm-hmm. how to feed, how to take care of your forest with feeding the mother trees, and then restoring the mycelial network and the mycorrhizal. Yeah. And pollinators. And the pollinators with the butterflies. butterflies. Exactly. Um, yeah. One of the cool things is when you get the mother trees healthy, 
healthier, they start to be able to feed the other species. And I've had the natives come up underneath my tree because the mother tree is healthy and she can then bring back the pollinators, you know, and particularly the wildflower and the milkweed. And milkweed's kind of not so abundant here. We're working on bringing it back. You know, it, it is adapted to fire and, and thrives with fire and done at the right time. So mainly it's about increasing biodiversity. And for the years, it's always been reduce fire danger, increase biodiversity, and increase the land's resilience to disturbance such as fire or flood or wind or driving or something that we might do. Yeah. Very cool. Can you talk about some of the like events at least recently that you've done or yeah, something yeah. that might be coming up. So this spring, or actually it was winter, maybe it was spring, up at Monarch, near Monarch, ski area. Mm-hmm. We um, can't tell you the exact location for certain reasons. <laughs> we invited people to dress up as beavers and monarch butterflies, and we had a bunch of people show up. That's on our website. You can see that. That was great. <laughs> One of us wore the full beaver costume. <laughs> And had a really good time. Uh-huh. The second event was um, a fundraiser dinner. And we had a wonderful dinner. We didn't raise so much money. We kind of, it was a very wonderful dinner, though. And we gained an opportunity to, to share with people what we're doing. Then we did the Mother Tree Festival with Jose Lucero and numerous events in it, like the journey. And and one thing that did happen, we had numerous speakers, Angie Jensen, who's been into forest stewardship for years as an arborist in Salida mm-hmm. and Chafee County. She came and then spoke about regenerational forestry because she's seen it all and she's very concerned that the forest is just being mowed down when it shouldn't be. And numerous people spoke along those lines, local people. But then we went out to feed um, uh, actually a father tree because the junipers, Rocky Mountain junipers here are males and females. It happens to be how they are. So we found a male, older male, and it is multi-stem showing the possible location of a ley line, mm. which might be important for what I'm about to tell you. Mm-hmm. And so characteristically, we put the mother tree food into five gallons of water, and then we spread it. And we all took turns spreading it like a star pattern so it can get the cold canopy and maybe further. And then you you trigger it with a sound, and the sound is 528 hertz. It's a bell, which I make. And so I'm going and to the tree. And why is it 528 hertz? Because that's what the trace elements resonate at. It also happens to be the frequency of our laughter, mm. for whatever reason. But when I make the trace elements, I don't know how this gets in, but I put my hand on it after they're made, and I hit the bell, and the whole thing will start vibrating. So I hit the bell. And I hit it a bunch of times. And then the people over here, they're going, what's happening? I said, why? Because there's pulses of energy coming out. And it's only in this one quadrant. And there were two people that were feeling this. And one of them had been in pain all weekend. Hmm. And her pain instantly vanishes. And the other person does a lot of computer work. And he had whatever it was. And his pain diminished almost to nothing. Hmm. What? I had no idea. I, this isn't something I dreamed up. Yeah. Generally, I'm not dreaming up any of this. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> you know. You know how you can like be. You can contrive things. Yeah. And maybe getting up people to weep, maybe it'll happen. Right. There wasn't any of this. Like, I had no idea that was going to happen. Yeah. And so I went home, and my mother tree. She's been fed. A friend came over. I said, "Hey, why don't you two stand underneath the tree for a minute? 
I didn't know he had a headache. I hit the bells because they're hanging on my tree. His headache goes right away. He tells me. It's like the lady that came over that introduced me to the music of the plants. And I could tell she needed like, some kind of healing. But hey, just here, I'll, I'm going to plug the tree in this time. And you're standing on this tree is like alive inside. So like, oh, she got some kind of healing too. So that is launching what we call the healing forest. And that's not necessarily through the nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly part of it. We could probably do it with, it's just, that might be overload the nonprofit. Because <laughs> we yeah. already have things that we're doing, pollinators and beavers yeah. and other trees and fire. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, like, I wonder if you've struggled a bit because I imagine that most people are used to seeing like ecology or especially a nonprofit as focusing on one thing, you know, like you need to really, which is completely antithetical to how ecology works, obviously. But do you feel like that's sometimes a bit of a hill to climb to say like, I have this holistic, you know, nonprofit, or is that maybe a bit easier now for people to kind of understand but like when it comes to grants and like the you know the bureaucratic logistical aspects do you ever feel like under pressure that you need to focus on one thing over something else if we just did firefighting it would probably just be a lot easier knowing that it's connected and if we don't address it it's you know you turn your sink on Mm -hmm. and you and it's you know the sink's clogged and it starts running over and flooding out your house and you start mopping it up without turning off the faucet. It's just going to keep doing the same thing, the same thing. It's a Band-Aid. Yeah. It's not. And so it's really difficult. And so just the other day, I'm, I'm meeting about the beavers, and I'm meeting about the water rights with these people that know the new legislation. And it's not what you think. Even if you read it, it's like it has to be interpreted. And it was all women, which I appreciated because of their sensitivity bring, they were bringing to this. And one of them said, I really appreciate your holistic perspective here. And I said, well, thank you. You know, it, it's, it, you, it's hard to not do it if you know it. Right. And so, yeah, it's a very good point because, you know, we try to get funding and people are like, well, how does that have anything to do with this? It's right. like, and I, you want to say, what, I, do you not see this? And that's hard. That's the hardest part for me. It's like, we're all very different. And that's the biggest thing I'm learning through this is like, no, people cannot see it. You actually have to show them and show them probably six times. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like there's so much of your, it's almost like the organization's, organization in some ways is like bridging all these different aspects of your own personal life, right? I mean, there's the fire piece and the <laughs> you're nodding in an obvious way for those who can't see. Um, yeah. That's right. We're not being <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to something, I think. I have a close friends who are actually going to be speaking at the Energy Fair in the fall. They're creating a film multimedia project in general called Death in the Garden. And they set out, actually, they had the idea in Crestone a few years ago. They were here visiting us. They were just young kids in their early 20s, like super passionate about regenerative agriculture, basically. And they were talented and one was a filmmaker and one was a writer. And they're going to go out and make this documentary and quite quickly realized that regenerative agriculture is not some like magical cure to save the planet and that anything that would be helpful would be far more holistic. 
And I watched them in their kind of like youthful optimism kind of get weighted down by, you know, how do we possibly make a film about anything when all of these different things are so connected, you know? So anyway, I appreciate the dedication to the holism because I feel like it's so not within like the cultural, I don't know, mindset to understand these things. But I feel like until we address these things holistically, like you said, we're just putting band-aids on everything. You know, it's like replanting the Chris and I spend summers in the van, go up through Idaho, Montana. But it's like we're just camping among tree farms, really. And, you know, there was a couple years ago we were out. It was really bad fire year. And I felt like the whole summer we were just like escaping smoke. And I remember in our process of escaping smoke, we were like, oh, well, we found this crazy road called the Magruder Corridor in in Idaho, which is just like long road in the middle of nowhere that we should not have taken in our van, but we did. But of course, the irony was that in our escaping the smoke, we ended up in the burned remains of a previous, I mean, thousands of acres of destruction. But I could just see the whole fucked up cycle right in front of me of like the land burns, we freak out, we replant it with one kind of tree, which makes it far more susceptible to burn in the future. And it's just like, it's it was overwhelming. It was the first time that I could, I kind of felt like I could visually see and comprehend the vastness of these issues. Yeah. Now that's probably my biggest challenge is to know what and how much to do at any one particular time. So to get an ally mm-hmm. and all these women are huge allies, you know, cause they're doing things that would take me months to get up on. And then can we get one success? That's what we're looking at. One success for the beavers here. What would that look like? That might, I have a return of family of beaver here that we would, before we didn't have the social media support and someone said, just go do it. Just do it. I said, no, we're going to do this as, as accurately with every jurisdiction that there is, if there is any, and with the support, because in 2012, we did the Beaver Fest. I got a, trapping license which I've never done and someone, an old timer came up to me and said, you know, if you bring him back I'm going to kill him and you know, there was still that mindset that they're varmints and still to this day, people say well, you can't bring him back because if you bring him back there, we can't hike on that trail yeah, we can move the trail (laughs) yeah you know, I think it's far more important, mainly that we're not the only ones that can benefit from being here. You know, there's other beings. That's, I mean, that's part of this. It's like, may others benefit too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not just doing this for me. Sometimes you say, why am I doing all this? This is like crazy. <laughs> but it is feeding me at the same time right. because like the trees are my allies. Like in a real way, it's like people, you're just making, you're just making up a crystone esque said, so, oh yeah, people, they'll get it when they get it. Yeah. But that's the, it's like called the keeper, like the keeper of the wisdom fire. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we can share that because that, even knowing that's possible. And the cool thing to share is that we can arrive at it from like more of a theoretical place. And that is from, from another, 
from a man named Dan Winter who talks about particle physics, that it's possible to take our consciousness and compress the space so that then the light wave becomes a particle. Meaning what? (laughs) Meaning when we're out burning, our consciousness affects Uh, that ash as it's being burnt. That's exact what he says. And he's not talking about just in fire. He's talking about in general. In general, yeah. You know, like, like like, like small and large scale. And then when we do the wisdom fire, you can see it. You can see it right in front of your eyes. It's going to take a little bit of time. Like, okay, how did you do that? How did you get... My brother goes, how did you do that? How did you get them to come back? Because they know... I mean, I try to explain these things and it's difficult. Yeah. Because sometimes I I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea how it's working. And so I put it in terms of life force and like the energy. Like, can we find a place for it to live? Can we find the space for it to live and be balanced? Yeah, it was interesting as far as life force, because you said something like, why am I doing all of this? And it's lit. that's literally verbatim what Sarah said. I interviewed her yesterday, two days ago. But it's like, it's almost like it, it's doing you more than, you know, <laughs> you're just the conduit for all of these things, which I think, again, I don't know what it is, if it's a rural thing or a Crestone thing or a San Luis Valley thing, but there does seem to be a lot of that here if people are open to that, you know, and I've already witnessed it. Like, I'm like, why, how did that come about? Like I had, I would never have imagined that I would get involved in that or be trying to do, you know, this one thing. And, and yet it seems attainable and possible. And I think you said something about space. There's the space. The space to do it. Yeah. There's not a lot of interference for the most part. Right. If you want to be something, there you go. Yeah. It's, there's a space there's, in lots of different like definitions of that word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in many ways, I, yeah. there used to be a brochure about Sawatch County in the nineties that said, welcome to Sawatch County. We've got plenty of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> and, you know, for most people it's like, oh, that's so terrible. Yeah. There's nothing there. And other of us might interpret it as, no, there's a lot of space for some of us need that. You know, because we want to want to grow in what's not the typical way to grow. You know, that's just what our spirit is moving us to do. And nothing, like like the adage of nothing makes me happy. Oh, that's so terrible. That's terrible. Nothing makes you happy. It's like, no, you're not getting it. Nothing makes me happy. Yeah. That's like everything makes me happy. It's just interesting. And, you know, when people come here, they often freak out if they're used to constant stimulation because you do have to face yourself here, which is probably the biggest challenge for most people. Yeah. Or and, the biggest draw, you know. Or the biggest draws. <laughs> I think it's probably the big, one of the biggest draws for me. But yeah, yeah it's... Especially a, these days. Yeah. You know, there's still plenty of space here. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. But even facing oneself, you know... Just because the community is so small, you know, you can't, there's no anonymity really, you know. Not here. Yeah. <laughs> there is up north one hour. Yeah. Like I've never seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And a little bit down south, but not like, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. People pay attention even when you don't think they are. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the Sonic Apothecary, but if people want to support or get involved with 
the organization? Where can they go and what can they do? Yeah, they can go to e3ecologic.org and they can see we're working on the specific things like um, mother trees, pollinators, and beavers. And we have been successful in fundraising to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. We're continuing to write grants. And it looks like we're going to get a grant where we're going to be surveying for the presence of beaver from Poncha Pass, basically down to Sand Creek. And I did this in my class in 2012, where we held the Beaver Fest when I taught at a class for Colorado College. We went up and hiked these creeks. And this is for the Forest Service. They requested us that we do this. Hmm. And then we have another grant that was originally for the Santa Water District here and to reduce hazardous fuels around their infrastructure. And for different reasons, they didn't want us, they didn't want to do it. Even though we got the money for them, they had to match it slightly, but they had other complications. So we're now reorganizing that grant to reflect the new regenerational style of fuel reduction, which in a sense is bringing up the water element with beavers and or their effects and then restoring the mycelial network and then favoring the mother trees. Awesome. Cool. That's the public version. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot more to this that when you out, it's private because you have your own interaction. Yeah. And when I taught people to cut early on, I said, please talk to the tree before you cut it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that tree didn't want to be cut. Because some of us would have never cut a tree down before this. Right. And now we go, oh, there's a good reason. And you'd think that the pine trees, for how many I've cut, and generally they're small, wouldn't want to talk to me, right, if nature was that way. But no, they've shared secrets with me. And that's that's the crazy part of this is like something will happen like like I'll fall down or I'll get frostbite. And if I tune in... Oftentimes the trees tell me what to do and it works. We didn't really talk about that, but that's also part of this is tuning in because it is still possible to do that. Because most of my way I work with the, especially the pine trees and the formulations is directly from them. It's not from reading or internet because we didn't have internet early on here. Yeah. We just had issues and I was like, oh my gosh, look what it does what it does it actually stimulates the pine right and i mean it's not super surprising like we all used to know these things you know so it's like a remembering as li- exactly as we <laughs> lived on the land yeah right you know and we relied on the land and yeah you know we you know like one of the big things that came out of the pandemic time is we in the distillation of the slash material from the fuel reduction we made a hydrosol which is it's the water goes through the plant and then deposits in a container. And then what floats on top is the essential oil. It's a fascinating process. Like this is like magic. Mm -hmm. And so you can take off the oil. We actually didn't know what to do with it, but we sent it to France and said, Oh, it has 70% monoterpenes and 7% sesquiterpenes. Great. What does that do? Then we learned that feeds the pineal directly like frankincense and myrrh. Mm. Hydrosol has 3.6% caprylic acid. Great. What does that do? Well, some people know that's a very gentle detoxifier, especially for different yeast imbalances. So during the pandemic, we put together a drink, which is mainly a hydrosol, then aspen hydrosol, mountain oregano hydrosol, grapefruit, lemon peel, star anise, um, berry, trace elements. And that helped a huge 
amount of people get through it and mm-hmm. back off things that were really threatening to them. Yeah. The Q-tonic. So we like to say as we're learning to take care of the forest, it's taking care of us. And now this whole healing thing, it's like, this is crazy. I accept. And there's the oil and there's the hydrosol. And then there's the topicals. You know, it's like, wow, no one, people think this is a wasteland tree. This is like a, this is like a sustenance tree for many cultures, you know, mm-hmm. over time. The nuts and then the firewood. Yeah. And then for us, it's the oil and the hydrosol and how, and now it's healing people. That's crazy. Talk about crazy. That is a definition of crazy. <laughs> it's kind of like living in both Avatar and <laughs> Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter all simultaneously. Yeah. And that's what it's like. And I appreciate all these questions. It's like, it's been a while since I've even entertained coming from that place, but it's helping for me to understand Good. what might people might be interested in, you know, in terms of like, okay, because this isn't just for these trees or, you know, fire. Yeah. This is for a lot of things. Yeah. And like, it sets up people to appreciate the forest bathing from Japan. And then what is actually happening is, they're in a place where they can receive the aroma from the trees and the sunlight, and it goes right to the pineal. The pineal then rejoins and can have proper communication or more proper communication with the rest of the body. And that's often certain kinds of diseases I've seen or believe that it's a disconnect mm-hmm. from, the pine, from the pineal to the rest of the body, the mm-hmm. brain, you know, the heart, and then the gut. The three yeah. brains don't communicate I believe it. (laughs) Yeah. So much to talk about. We could. Uh, Here's the issue, right? It's (laughs) like you keep going into another area of of interest and application. Yeah. And that's what I've been loving to do. Yeah. So the music piece, you said, mentioned briefly the woman who introduced you to the music of plants or something. Yeah, Barbara. She, one of her good friends... She offered to show him, and he didn't want to, but he goes, talk to Peter. He'll probably be into it. So she calls me up and says, hey, I have a machine that can help the plants sing. I said, really? I said, I'm open, but I don't believe you. So we had tea, and we talked about it. So we had a day in time, so we met over at the old lab, and we hook it up. It's like an electrode to the needles and then one to the ground. And it's her machine. And it goes, ting. It's like, cool, I made a sound. Is that it? She goes, well, for now, but sometimes it can do more. It depends. I said, well, can we do anything? <laughs> to get it to do more. <laughs> yeah. She says, well, maybe if you, you know, play instruments or something. So I have my instruments over there, so I start, go get them. Like a couple hours later, it's playing back to me what I'm playing to it. Wow. That was the beginning, but it wasn't the beginning of me and the plant music because several years before I went up here, a place called Willow Park, on this winter solstice with my trumpet and my dogs mm-hmm. on my skis. And up there's a bowl, and I'm playing Paul Winter's songs, like before I knew him. And he has this whole winter album. It's called Winter Song. And I know him by heart. I'm just playing him. And the valley takes it, and then no matter what note you play, and brings it back. And so I just play for hours until my hand, my until I, I'm so cold I can't play anymore. And it's about sunset, so it's like, oh, I better get going. I had my glove off so I could play, and 
oh, interesting. Because all these echoes would come back. And then, you know, they lasted you know, less than 30 seconds. Yeah. So I went, wait a minute. There's something else going on here. And I, I noticed there was no sound whatsoever. No sound. Because it's kind of, it's protected. Only sound was when I moved my foot in the snow, my boot. And go, my dogs are sleeping. Like, let's see how long I can listen to nothing. Just to see. Like, like what is here? Is there anything here? Is there actually no sound? And so I started listening. And I heard absolutely nothing. Which how often anywhere... Remember here in Wyoming, on a road, and went nowhere, right? The only thing was there was antelopes and nothing. So I'm up there, and I'm listening to nothing for a while, like five or ten minutes. And then from around the mountain comes this full symphonic sound. And I was like, I look at my dog, I was like, you guys hearing this? Like, <laughs> and so obviously I didn't tell anybody. That's certifiable. You're hearing music. And so John Milton is at the cloud or somewhere, and he starts talking about music of the mountains, music of the trees. I, oh, yeah, John, I've heard that. He goes, really? How many days were you up there? I said, days? I was up there a couple hours. The music of the plants is in the same realm as that. And so as we've, that was the beginning with Barbara, she actually came to the mother tree recently and I hooked it up for her because she's, she's given me a lot, you know, so I wanted to give back, you know, just mm-hmm. cause she would enjoy it too. Several concerts later, a, a CD called Spreading Like Wildflowers. Now the, the plants can now override AI, which is the most exciting. I have an Ableton set up and it overtakes it. It, it, it guides it. Wow. And we even have concerts where the sound engineer will go, I don't know where this sound is coming from. And it's very much like being up high. And it's happened a number of times. And he's just going, I have no idea where this sound is coming from. And so it's just, I have no idea. It's it's the mystery revealing itself, at least to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. that there's a lot more going on. And some of us, this is what I realized, is that some of us do have a sensitivity to it. And it's all we can do to maintain that sensitivity and be in the world and share it. And we know, I mean, I've gotten good at it since I was a little kid. Yeah. I've had to. Yeah. Because no one would believe me until I find one other person like, oh, they can see it or they can hear it. (laughs) I've literally said this, like, people would have no idea how... And a lot of some people work it took to, yeah. to get to this place, yeah. just to be able to sit across yeah. and have a conversation yeah. about it. And some people use other things to do that. I think that's great. And like the formulations, they override psychedelics. We're getting ready to launch the Rescue Angel training program because, you know, psychedelics are being used more and not everybody knows how to do them. Yeah. I just yeah. recorded an episode about that, basically. Really? Yeah. So yeah, we're starting that. We've done it several times. But also, since the magnetic field is shifting and the sun's shifting, there's what we call space weather disturbances. Those can have the effects of psychedelics. Mm. Without psychedelics, people aren't realizing this. It's affecting your brain. And then we also do an aspect of high-altitude sickness because it is about consciousness. Can you be conscious without thinking? You know, can you operate without thinking? Can you be in the zone? And a pie is a great place because it's hard to think mm-hmm. at 12,000 feet. 
and the higher you go, it's, it, it slows people down. But if you're used to being in that conscious place without having to rely on your thoughts, that's going to help you. Interesting. In so many ways, especially as these other factors are playing into, you know, whether it's a disturbance from a field going down or being influenced by different things. Yeah, because we people don't really know what high altitude sickness is, right? I feel like I looked this up recently because I'd never been affected by it, but had witnessed people right next to me been severely affected. I've had it a yeah. few times. And, it's and like, someone said, like, drink a lot of water, but, like, I don't think it's a... That's why? not a dehydrate. Right, exactly. <laughs> None of the like solutions sure. make much sense, well, aside from general well-being. It's layers. And I learned a lot about this when I did a rescue at a festival last year, and mm-hmm. someone had taken way too much LSD. They were getting pushed out of their body. Yeah. And so I had the kid with me and they, the safe people asked me, would you come help? I said, sure. Just make sure, you know, go through the protocols and stuff. And so we gave them the first thing, which is the formulations from the forest here that basically removes the LSD and then replaces it. And so it worked for like five minutes and then he went back down and his head started going in and out. Then we gave him the jumper which is the oil of gold, it will jump right back in two minutes. And this one generally works for you, the first one first, so you can like mm-hmm. remember. The second one just jumps you back. It's like, a, you know, jumping between time and space. Again, five minutes, back down. Okay, there's something going on here. So what was it? Well, there's something else inside of it. Mm-hmm. We had to get that out. And once that was out, it was easy to get back in. And then you got to go and rehab for a bit. And then an hour and a half later, he's back on the dance floor crazy but yeah what is that yeah you know an altitude sickness if there's no grounding effective grounding like available water and available mineral that essence maybe can't get what it's used to in terms of staying home hmm. and sometimes people are just hovering just outside and they you have to just find a way to get them back in yeah which is fascinating yeah yeah i recorded an episode with this guy jules evans who just started an organization i think called the challenging experience challenging psychedelic experiences project to address the like long-term effects that some people have from doing psychedelics that are like so rarely spoken about ever people have all sorts of (laughs) side effects but he was telling a story about a guy who smoked dmt several years ago and the way that this guy tells the story is like knowing that it was like the wrong time the wrong place the wrong people knew so well that he shouldn't do it but uh was getting pressured by his friends to do it anyway And so he did smoke the DMT and he said like instantly again, he knew it was wrong and he was able to kind of get himself out of it in the Mm -hmm. moment, like stop the trip from happening. But ever since then was suffering from like severe derealization. So felt like he was living in a dream all the time, like just weird shit going on. And so eventually I think he, he tried everything. He was just at the psychedelic sciences conference in Denver to try to like get answers to what to do. But at some point he went to see a shaman, I think, in Peru, maybe, or Brazil, who said, oh, you fucked with the plants. Like, you knew you shouldn't have done it, and you did it anyway. And that that kind of, like, lack of respect is causing this stuff. And she did something that helped significantly. Oh, good. But that made a lot of sense to me, you know? Like, these things that we don't know but know, you know? and Like, the intuitive, maybe not all the pieces. right. right. Yeah, because how to trust that? I mean, you talked about, this is stuff I talk about all the time, like asking the tree permission and these things that we think or people might like hear as kooky or weird that used to be totally 
quote normal, right? Like we we had such a connected relationship with not just like living things, but non-living things that were considered animate and yeah, so I don't know, this process of not just recognizing the intuition, but then actually listening to it and trusting it. I think that must be so much of what you probably end up teaching or trying to teach, you know, <laughs> which is not, which is very amorphous. And yeah. As I like to say, intuition is life force awareness. Yeah. And since as a little kid, I was able to pick up on life force and I didn't know what it was, though. Right. And with your example with the shaman and, and the man that was working with that particular challenge, the rescue angel training basically shows you or brings up the importance of developing your own electromagnetic field and knowing how to stabilize it. Hmm. That is the basic thing. And so if one of us or someone or even ourselves, can you be the rescue angel for yourself? Like, right. Right. And so can you learn how to do that in your life? And sure, show it on a meter. Yeah. Like if you have crazy life forces arising, what makes them crazy is that they're not contained. Right. And you want to go do something crazy. And so there's a very simple process, but it's not necessarily simple unless you're familiar mm -hmm. with the different aspects of space, life force flow, and field. And that's the crux. And yes, we have like formulations that will help biochemically mm -hmm. we have practices that help like energetically and to build the field because it's not just one thing right. and that's the fun of this for some of us like i went to that festival and i hadn't been to a festival in a bit because you know everything got shut down yeah. and oh my gosh <laughs> it's like am i even up for even being here yeah because of the influx right. it's like you know if you have certain allies and you have confidence and it shows to work, that's what was part of that success. I came out of that festival being empowered. Hmm. There was no, there was like, oh my gosh, this is, because here's all this this energy coming maybe at you, you're, you're perceiving. Can you find enough space for that to live in the field to generate itself? I had one really good ally and that was the river over there and a few others. But it's, it's way, way, it's like a cartoon coming to life. Like, like he was, it's like, I'm in a dream. It's like, yeah, that is one of the realities going on all the time. Yeah. We call it the imaginal realm. The plants are in it. Can we also function? Some of us can, and some of us can't so well yeah. for whatever reason. So can we bring it together? Can you actually talk to the fire and hear what it's saying back? That becomes fascinating. As soon as one other person, like, oh my gosh, it worked. Yeah. Or even more so, that's an outer thing. But if you have an inner thing that's been bugging you for years and years and all of a sudden it transforms and your fear becomes like like a love or an openness that's huge to know that you can change something in here and that changes your outer experience yeah totally We've kind of gotten a bit from the forest but the forest can certainly <laughs> help us with that it makes sense yeah i had which is a conversation for another time but struggled with health issues my whole life and they got really bad about six years ago right after i got divorced and i was like I'm living the life I'm supposed to be living. Why aren't I being rewarded? And I just got like really sick um, and was taking, you know, I'd been into naturopathic stuff forever. So I knew like whatever I was going to do had to be holistic and natural, but I just ended up taking all of these supplements. And there was a, I mean, I had, you know, one of those like pill organizers with like just supplements that wouldn't even fit in them and like all this stuff. 
and eventually got to the point where I had some intuitive understanding of like these health issues will go away when I'm ready for them to. What I had sort of discovered was that the health stuff was keying me into something that was wrong that I wasn't paying attention to. Anyway, the point of it was eventually I went up to pick up that freaking container of supplements and it happened enough. I just got so nauseous, like just I couldn't do it anymore. And one day impulsively, I, I and I was eating like all these restricted diets and all of these things to try to fix my problems. And one day I said, enough. Like if I'm going to be a little sick for the rest of my life, I'd rather eat whatever I want to eat and not take any supplements. So I'm just going to stop. I stopped all the supplements. I started like eating bread and butter and all these things that I'd cut out for years. And that's when I got better without any of that it's stuff. It's interesting. You know? yeah, I, I had a similar request early on because my mom couldn't eat a lot of things mm-hmm. like that. And so one of the workshops I did, we all got to ask, what would you really like in your life? And I said, I'd like to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. And it happened. That's awesome. So I understand. Yeah. I mean, I understand. And yeah. Sure, there's certain things that I am intuitively aware of. Right. And you and can get to that place ultimately. And for me at the time, it was just... No, I can understand yeah. that. And yeah. yeah, it's been kind of a hard lessons to know. And once you're through it, it's, oh, wow, I, how come I couldn't see that? Mm-hmm. That's where the life forces play in. And then can you find the space? Because that space, once you combine whatever the thought or the feelings are with the space that leads to the intuition that leads to the guiding of that 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 energy mm-hmm. and this is all very traditional yeah. very traditional but it's not being presented that way because no one understands the tradition at times until you go no see that thought let it be in the space what does the space mean that's probably the biggest challenge for us we're back to space again it's like what do you mean by space it's a good question yeah. So when we go up high, we can see the prana. And everyone gets excited because you can see the prana, you know, the life force in the air. So do you see that? I go, yeah. Okay, don't look at that. Look at the space. Connect with the space and see what happens. Most of us love the energy. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> oh, more energy, more energy. It's true. Every one of us. Yeah. We love the energy. Yeah. Now pay attention to the space at the same time. You don't have to give up anything. It's just like, no, include the space. No, we'll do it right here together. We already been, right? But now we're going to do it exactly, okay? And all I'm going to do, because this is a meditation. Mm-hmm. When I meditate, I'm going to look like I'm looking at you, but I'm actually looking about right here. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to look right there. You see that? Yeah, totally. Okay, so now we'll just take a moment and then see what's in the space here in, in, in this space. For me, sometimes I see things, and if I start seeing stuff, I acknowledge it and go right back to the space. Oftentimes, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, wow, I can feel way more things coming on, too, energetically. When you find that in your life, it's like, wow, pay attention. There's your gateway. You're getting closer and closer, but know what to pay attention to. Love it. Especially if there's... And a flame can do the same thing. Yeah. You know, you can gaze into a flame and try and find the space in the flame. That's crazy fun. I've gotten to do that a lot. I mean, because as a firefighter, that's what you're doing. You're looking right. But if you don't have the guidance, you could have been a firefighter for 20 years and missed it every time. Yeah. Definitely true. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter. This was You're welcome. Great fun. This is great. <laughs> yeah.
is really enjoyable. Can we yeah. hear some plant music? Yeah, we can go Bring out. Your and, machine? Okay. Yeah, we can go out and hook it up. Okay. Cool. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to my conversation with Peter. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I could have kept going, to be honest. I felt incredibly engaged and fascinated. After this conversation, Chris and I bought some of Peter's mother tree food and fed our mother tree, which was very exciting. Uh, we've been posting a lot of updates, by the way, about our place here in Crestone and the projects we're working on in Crestone on Instagram under at the Crestone conglomerate, which is a rock here that we feel like symbolizes so much of the project that we're creating, bringing lots of different people from lots of different places in the world together, which is what this rock that only exists here contains, lots of rocks in another rock. Uh, and we're posting a bunch of stuff that we're doing on Instagram. So if you go at the Crestone conglomerate on Instagram, you'll see that. We also created a YouTube page and I've been shooting a lot of video, but to be honest, do not have the time, <laughs> have not had the time to put all of that together. So if anyone's interested in coming to Crestone and being our official videographer and helping me out with some editing, that would be rad um, because I want to showcase all that we're doing and just do not have enough arms and legs and enough time in the world to do the myriad of creative projects that I want to do on any given basis. It's a struggle. Uh, so you can find updates about that there. And yeah, we posted a little bit about feeding our mother tree, Peter's mother tree food, <laughs> among many other things uh, that we've been working on. So check that out. Uh, I can put the link in the episode description for that as well. And also after this conversation, Peter and I went outside and hooked up his little machine to one of our trees, uh, which sang to us and was maybe one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. Uh, just like totally wild and so bizarre to watch it like warm up. Like at first it's not really <laughs> talking back, but then if you play music for it or uh, Peter had a recording of a, of one of his, uh, one of the trees on his property that he played for the tree on our property and then it like starts singing back. Oh my gosh, just totally. I just, I can't even describe it with words. It was the most exciting thing. And I felt so bad, like disconnecting the machine and turning it off. Like, oh my God, the tree is singing to us though. Like we have to hear it forever. Uh, so as was discussed on the podcast, Peter has a band that he calls the Sonic Apothecary that I think is the best name for a band ever, but his band which he calls, I think, a bio band, is made up of both humans and plants. And so I'm going to play you out with one of the songs from uh, one of his albums, uh, which is called Spreading Like Wildflowers. You can find it on iTunes or actually, I'm not sure if you can find it on Spotify, but it's definitely on iTunes and you should buy it because we should support people, right? Um, so I'm going to play you out with a song from Spreading Like Wildflowers, which is a combination of these plant recordings mixed with humans playing musical instruments. And yeah, don't really know what is cooler than that, than that band-wise. Uh, Peter actually came up to me before we recorded this conversation several, several weeks prior saying that he had this band where he plays his plants and wanted to know if he could play it in one of my dance classes, which we have yet to organize, but which I think would be amazing uh, because the whole point is that the plants also would respond to the people dancing and the, the energy in the room, which just seems... Uh, so cool, I can hardly take it. So enjoy the Sonic Apothecary. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Peter. I hope you will come 
here to meet all these cool people in person, whether just for a visit or to stay. Uh, I feel like this place is growing, whether people like it or not. Um, especially after COVID, I feel like everyone's kind of seeking something a bit farther out. And it's my feeling that if people are going to come, might as well get all the cool kids to come. (laughs) And I consider all of you guys cool kids. So let me know if you ever make your way down to South Central Colorado. Would love to show you around. Until next time. Thank you.